1: Throughout the decades, artists and entertainers have performed in Las Vegas and some have been long associated with the city, including Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, Neil Diamond, Barry Manilow, and of course, Frankie Valli. These performers have one thing in common, my guest, Charles Colello. With a discography that includes over 100 Billboard chart records, Charles Colello is regarded as one of the greatest arrangers of our time. His recordings include more top 10 hits than any other arranger, with 15 nominated for Grammy Awards. You can follow him on Facebook at Charles Colello, the hitman. And Charlie, welcome to the show.
0: Nice to join you.
1: Okay, the hitman. Let's start with that, because <laughs> that can have all kinds of connotations, especially because, of course, you come from New Jersey. But what's the real story? Between, who, who named you that? Do you remember?
0: Well, back in the 90s, a friend of mine talked me into doing a show. And I hadn't been on a stage in about uh, oh, 25 years because I, I was in the studio making records and that was my main business. And they wanted to know what they should call the show. So they called it The Hitman. And he, when, I, when I spoke to him, I said, well, what do you want me to do in the show? He said, just play your hit records and tell stories about them. So that's how, actually how it came about. Yeah, it was
1: a, it's a great moniker and it's to the point. So why not? I'm always curious about how creative people function uh, day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year, decade-to-decade. You're going strong. What keeps you going creatively?
0: Well, that's quite, that question has been asked uh, numerous times to numerous people. And I think it was Sammy Khan who gave the best answer when he was asked. He said, there are really two answers, the phone call and the check.
1: cause and effect. (laughs) I think that's a very practical answer, but I'm sure you get, and I've I've talked to a lot of creative people over the years, and there is also the element of what I would call joy in creating. There's something that causes you to feel a renewal of yourself by being in the creative process. Do you get that sense when you're working?
0: Well, this year I'm going to be 83. I started writing arrangements when I was 16 years old. And when I sit down to write an arrangement, the same thing runs through my mind. I start off with, I don't know what to do. Where am I going to start? And before you know it, when I get involved and it starts to take shape, it's sort of like making a painting where you paint a little here, a little there, a little here, and a little there, and eventually you get it to be what you want. And the creative process, to me, is laborious and heartwarming, because if you could speak from your heart and create what's in your heart and always do that, you'll always find joy in it. But there's always
1: that aspect, Charlie, of the creative part of it and then the, the real hard part, which is the refining or the editing of what you've created. And it seems to me it's those dual tracks where you're creating and you get this spontaneous idea and you're having a little fun with it, but then you look at it, and especially on a commercial level when you're creating and writing songs, that you have to edit it or rewrite it, I guess that would be a better term, rewrite it so that it's where it needs to be.
0: Well, there there comes a point in every arranger's life, I, I would imagine, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm going to think that most arrangers go through the same process where you start, where you first write, because you know it could be musically correct. But then when the breakthrough actually comes, when you start to write what you feel. And if I wrote what I felt, and I felt that the song was really strong, and I knew I could make the song appeal heartwarming to me, I knew it would appeal heartwarming to somebody else. It may not appeal to you, but it would appeal to somebody. And if that were created, then what would happen is you would be able to commercially do something that would have success. Now, Even if it didn't have success, it would have psychological success in, in the mind of, of, of the person created, especially myself, knowing that it was a job that I did that I'm really well pleased with because I know that it, that it really did everything I wanted it to do.
1: Do you remember the first time that happened?
0: It happened very early on in making records. When I first started making records, I really didn't have that much knowledge about pop music. So I took a lot of direction. I had a, a, a lot of uh, uh, quite a few amazing teachers. One of them was Bob Crewe, who produced the Four Seasons. Bob had had uh, hit records in the past, and he'd say, Charles, I want this to sound like this, and I wanted to have this, and this is the rhythm I want. So he basically guided me. So I basically did what they wanted. And also, uh, one of the other uh, talented people I worked with back then was Bob Gaudio, who wrote uh, some of the songs for the Four Seasons. Bob also had knowledge of what pop music was. Now, once I got a I got a, a handle on it, then I was able to apply it uh, musically in a way that not only accomplish what they wanted, but also added that musical element that ultimately made me gain that satisfaction.
1: So then once you got it, you kept just kept going, and you've had this amazing career. When you look back at that, besides Bob Crew and Bob Gaudio, were there others that influenced you before you just launched yourself into this world of arranging and composing and singing?
0: Well, in making pop records, because Bob Crew and Bob Gaudio had already had hit records, Just learning the basis about how they approached it was a learning experience for me. But along the way, listening to pop music at that point was actually the best learning experience because I started to understand the market. Because prior to recording uh, with Bob Crew, I had no interest in pop music. I went to a music and arts high school, and I went to Manhattan School of Music, and I was not really interested in pop music until I realized that This was where my life was heading. And then I took an interest in it and started to get an understanding about what I liked in pop music, what I didn't like, what I could do and what I couldn't do.
1: And then there was a period of time in your career, in addition to Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, where you went and worked at Columbia Records. And that was an interesting period of time for you. What was Goddard Lieberson like, the president of Columbia Records at that time? Because he was a major force in, in the record industry.
0: By the time I got to uh, Columbia Records, Goddard Lieberson, although he was the president, had turned over the majority of the responsibility to Clive Davis. So I never really got to work with Goddard. I just knew of his reputation. But one of the things that took place at Columbia Records was the person who was really bringing in all the talent was a person by the name of John Hammond. John Hammond signed Bob Dylan, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Simon and Garfunkel, uh and many of the people that were starting to make headroads uh, into pop music which ultimately changed the the uh, the tone of the the company and I came in at the beginning of that when they were, when that change was was sort of taking place. So it was an interesting experience watching the way a corporation operates as opposed to us that were really basically working for ind- independent producers, how independent producers worked. It was a, a big, big learning experience between working for a corporation and working for independent producers.
1: And, of course, over the decades, the corporate influence continued and expanded versus individuals, although there are exceptions, of course, but you were there mm-hmm. at that point where you saw the major influence of corporations.
0: Yeah, when corporate got involved in pop music, and you started to see the record companies like uh, like Capitol Records with the Beach Boys and the Four Seasons at that point on a small independent label called VJ. You could actually see the power that the Beach Boys had being with a major label. And uh, it took the Four Seasons another couple of years before they signed with a corporate company, Philips. And then that didn't last long. They didn't have the... They didn't stay with Phillips, they eventually went to Motown. So when the majors took hold of an artist, they stayed with an artist. As a result, you had the development of Barbara Streisand, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, all of these people remained with the companies that signed them, and they were able to elevate their career. Even Elton John stayed with the original record company. It didn't take place with the independents. So the people that started with independents were sort of not in a... Uh, particularly uh, as, as, as good a position as those that really were uh, developed through these major record companies. And the Beach Boys on Capitol Records had a much better career than the four seasons that were on VJ.
1: Interesting. You were also working with some major names. You worked with Sinatra, obviously, with the album Watertown. Where was that recorded?
0: It was recorded in New York at Columbia Records. They had a studio there that was uh, originally a church that was remodeled uh, into uh, a studio that they recorded the New York Philharmonic, and most of the Broadway shows in New York were recorded at Columbia 30th Street. That's where we chose to record Frank. And were you pleased with the results? Uh, yes, it, w- it was an amazing experience. I was At that point, I was 31 years old and grew up, Uh, naturally listening to Frank Sinatra's records as a kid, and basically teaching myself, arranging from listening to those records. And uh, to have the opportunity to be in the studio with Frank Sinatra was an awesome experience.
1: When he recorded in New York at Columbia Records Studios, was it the same setup as he did at the Capitol Records studio? In other words, they had the orchestra there in front of him. He He didn't isolate himself.
0: Well, he didn't sing live on those sessions. But one of the things about Capitol Records, most of the classic records that Sinatra did were not recorded at the Capitol Studio, the round building in California. They were recorded in a studio that Capitol owned prior to building that building, which was on Melrose. And all those famous records, like the Swinging Session and and, uh, Come Dance With Me, all, all those records were actually done Uh, in that studio, and after they moved to Capitol, uh, in my opinion, although the Capitol studio became famous, and he continued to record there, the best sounding records they had came out of that Melrose studio. It is
1: amazing, Charlie, because people think that all of it did happen at the Round Capitol Records building, but as you mentioned, Melrose Avenue studios were some of the key albums.
0: Right, right.
1: Let's take a break. My guest is singer, composer, conductor, arranger, and record producer, Charles Colello. You can follow him on Facebook at Charles Colello, The Hitman. We'll be right back.
0: We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. You are an adventurer, and your adventure awaits
1: right around the corner at the Springs Preserve. Here, everyone can explore hiking and bike trails, participate in hands-on activities and classes, jump on a train ride, wander through a botanical garden, and more. Visit springspreserve.org.
0: Now, let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira.
1: Welcome back. I'm talking with singer, composer, conductor, arranger, and record producer Charles Colello. You can follow him on Facebook at Charles Colello, The Hitman. And Charlie, the interesting part about your life and career, as you mentioned earlier on, you were into serious music when you were studying at school, and yet you ended up in the world of pop music. And I don't say that in a negative way, but it's an interesting contrast because you've worked with some greats that were obviously in the world of pop music. But have you thought about whether you wanted to go back the other way later on in your career?
0: Well, when I started as a kid and going to a music and arts high school, I was surrounded by a people my own age, but that were much more advanced than I was. And they were sort of favoring following jazz or a more sophisticated kind of music. So I gravitated toward that. So as far as becoming interested in classical music or, or studying classical music, although I did study. In school, it was not my focus. My focus really was to be a big band string arranger, orchestral arranger, which I I pretty much had set my sights on what I wanted to do. I never thought that it would happen through records, so I never really had the feeling that I really wanted to go back and do anything other than what I was doing. And today when you go into the
1: studio and you are still working regularly, do you see any changes, separate of course from the technology, do you see any other changes in the approach to recording compared to 10, 20, 30 years ago?
0: Well, when we came along making the Four Seasons Records, uh, we used to record in sections, and this is the way the pop record business eventually changed instead of recording everyone in the same room as what would happen at Columbia Records for example when I started uh, we recorded the rhythm sections first and then we would record horns or strings and then we would record the background vocals the the lead singers we did it in sections as far as that was concerned that uh, that that type of recording continues right down to today the only thing that has really changed is we have more tracks to record on, which makes mixing the records a lot more complicated. Exactly, but
1: isn't that why they started to record in sections? Because they could. It, it went from two-track to four-track to to eight-track to 16 to 32 to 1,042,000 <laughs> tracks exactly. that you can do, yeah. And it's almost a a, um, a surplus of options, which I would think makes it, not just more complicated, but it can get confusing because you're forced in a, in a smaller track universe to be creative and to put it all together. If you have a multitude of options, then you are kind of always working the edges and trying to get it to this point or that point.
0: Well, to give you an example of something, the first hit record that we had that I had other than The Four Seasons was a record called The Name Game, uh, with Shirley Ellis. I produced the record and it was actually my first hit away from the four seasons. That track with four other songs was recorded in three hours and the entire record was finished within a period of six hours from the time I started the recording session to the time it was mixed and the night I drove home I heard it on the radio that's something that doesn't exist anymore
1: and that is amazing that you said you're driving home and you can hear it on the radio just the just the technology and the distribution system and how it all flowed you were able to hear your product at the end of the day from when you started That's that is amazing
0: well with the technique that we used years ago people had to perform and in today's day and age with technology people don't really have to perform because uh, it it's not as expensive anymore to record because most people could record either in their homes or in MIDI studios uh and w- which are relatively ex- inexpensive to build back then recording studios were expensive. You needed real estate, you needed a recording board, you needed microphones. you need to be able to record multiple people at the same time. but today that doesn't happen i i I mean we still do record like that in fact uh, uh i I do live dates. Uh, Where I'll record every, I'll record a big band and the rhythm section together in a room. But making pop records is is, uh, basically still the same system. You record it in sections.
1: Do you think though that today, because you can, as you say, you don't have to perform the way you had to years ago, do you think that there is a certain energy that is lost? And I don't mean artificial, I don't mean artificial energy that you can hear on a record today, but just a natural energy from the performer?
0: Well, uh, putting a group of musicians together, when they really locked a track, locked onto the performance, you felt it in the studio, that all the bodies were in sync. And today when they record, they record differently, so you're you're not going to get that feeling. But take into consideration, every ten years in pop music, it changes. So the way that kids are listening to records right now they accept the kind of music that they're listening to as if it were an authentic, uh, an, an authentic uh, emotion being delivered to them. But back when we started, that emotion would have to come from a group of people. So as times change and the music changes and the recording styles would also change, you see that they're not, they're not better, they're only different. So so when yes. you take a look at the way that they record today and the way that we recorded back then, when we made records, the people that recorded before us thought that we were not really doing what they did, which was able to create with the whole orchestra and the singer in the room. And they, they sort of looked down on what we did. So every generation is looking and saying, oh, what we did before was better. But in essence, the public is the one that really responds to to what it is that we do and they they still you know the record business and 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 music is right now bigger than it's ever been before.
1: I think that's a very realistic analysis. People I don't think think through that way because you're right, human nature being what it is, we always say uh, the good old days were this or that and it's not done the same way and so it's not going to sound as good, but you're living in the present so whatever is there is there.
0: One of the fortunate parts about the history that we have, if you want to listen to symphony Music, you go to a symphony, you hear an orchestra, and you could hear the way the music was, was written in the 18th century, the 20th century. If you want to hear Dixieland, there's still places that play Dixieland. You go to New Orleans, you'll hear it. If you want to hear bebop, you can go to jazz clubs in New, in New York. And if you want to hear 60s rock, there's still bands that play like that. So the advantage that we have today is we have this variety of music, The thing that happens today with modern performers is because electronics have played a major part, the artists today are able to duplicate what they do because a lot of what they do when you see them is they play pre-records. So they can actually enhance their performance electronically because most of what we listen to today is electronic. So you're not hearing, although you may not be hearing the original sounds or they may enhance it in live performances. Basically what you're doing is you're really getting the authenticity of the records today being performed by these current artists in, 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 to a much better degree than even people that record in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, because the overdubs that they were able to produce, they were never able to produce live. But now they play tapes, they have background voices taped, they have all these things that are pre-recorded that they play along with the live performances. So in many respects, they, they sound a lot better.
1: And that's the key, isn't it? You have the live performance, but you also have the enhanced sound. So as a result, you're getting pleasure as an audience member from what you're seeing and hearing, regardless of how it's done.
0: But as an arranger, I can tell you this, that when I would write an arrangement, and I'd walk into a recording studio, and I'd hear the musicians play that arrangement, and I'd hear it develop, right before me and hear it transform from the notes on the paper into a live performance and get that feeling in the studio when that was happening you knew the difference between what was going to be really great and what was going to be just another record and that you would hear instantaneously today I don't think that happens as readily as it did back then I don't think that arrangers get that feeling working electronically
1: yeah, that's a good point. Before we leave you, do you remember your first time in Las Vegas and what was that like? Uh, and did you have an unusual experience here?
0: Well, the first time I was in Vegas was in the 50s with my band. Uh, and this is going back uh, when we when I was touring. And eventually when I started to make records, going to Las Vegas to see the artist that I recorded, that was an interesting experience in itself because when I would go there, uh, at least, Three or four of my artists that I re- were recording were all performing there, but uh, Ve- Vegas uh, was always a place where you could actually hear the music uh, pretty much the way it was being recorded because they would carry enough musicians to be able to perform the music. It wasn't like you would hear it in a local, you know, a club or a place where where they performed. So as far as Vegas was concerned there were a lot of experiences I had and I don't know which one I would ever be able to recite outside of going there the first time I wasn't there three hours when I had to call my mom to wire me money because I lost it the crap <laughs> that almost sounds
1: like a typical Las Vegas story the last la-
0: the last thing I would be
1: remiss if I didn't mention the three well the one word that's repeated three times that you're famous for, Uh, And I I know I'm sure at this point it's trite to you, but still, it's an interesting concept that you added a little thing to a Neil Diamond song that as a result, you hear it all over the place,
0: even today. Right. For as many hit records as I've been associated with, and and, uh, my daughter put a web page together for me back uh, when I turned 65 and there were 38 top 10 hits that she found that I did but the interesting part about uh, the bump bomb bump with all the hit records i made when i when i say to people uh you know what well, well, what do you do as an arranger i say i wrote the bump bomb bump at sweet caroline that's the thing that gets them excited the fact that I started with the four seasons and I recorded all the people I recorded falls into insignificance over the three little notes. <laughs> well, that's a
1: great way to leave it. My guest has been singer, composer, conductor, arranger, and record producer Charles Colello. You can follow him on Facebook at Charles Calello the Hitman. And Charlie, thanks for being on the show.
0: My pleasure. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas
1: the most exciting city in the world.